Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Totes Magoo. Rolling. Take one. I'm almost done. Can you just be a little bit more quiet? Thank you. Is it going to be all right? And welcome to All Through a Lens. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Banya. And I'm Eric. And on this episode, we get to meet Tiffin Sinclair, host of the Fit with Film podcast and our new on-the-spot correspondent. We'll also be talking a whole hell of a lot about FSA photographer Marion Post Wolcott. There's the answering machine, zine reviews, and loads of fun. But first, Vanya, how the hell are you? <laughs> I'm quite well, thank you. Good. <laughs> I haven't been shooting very much. Uh, I think it's something I go through, just like a little bit of a dry spell. I think that's why we decided to do that uh, little front half segment last episode, uh, hoping that maybe that would help me <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah. Did it? It did a little. I went to Joshua Tree on a day trip with my dog, Bodie. Your dog, Bodie. Okay. Yeah, dog. I, I'm going to start saying dog, Bodie. <laughs> just just in case. Okay. <laughs> I shot some Lomo Purple, and I shot a few shots with the Graflex RB and that Fuji Chrome like duplicating film. How did, how did that go? I mean, Lomo Purple is just kind of fun, and it's – I mean, I'll probably shoot it again at some point. I think it, it looked really fun in the desert. And sure. I have some ideas. Uh, as far as Joshua Tree, it was a Saturday. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was a little rough. Also, I keep forgetting that in national parks, you're not allowed to have dogs on trail. I really like to travel with him, and I'm trying to get him a little bit more comfortable just on the road. And he's sure. been doing really well. It makes me really happy. I would love to just be able to take him everywhere all the time, but that's just not how things work. Sure. Uh, I also been taking care of all my animals. Uh, Marley's cat went to the vet, got his teeth cleaned. Sigma. Ooh, nice. Uh, he's <laughs> he's the only one of all of us who's gotten his teeth cleaned since this I know. Whole pandemic. Thing. I haven't even done that for myself. No. Ugh. It's gross. So after I dropped him off, I had decided, you know what? I'm like 15, 20 miles away from my house and I'm on Delamo Boulevard. I think I'm just going to drive this all the way back to the South Bay. So that's what I did. Perfect. And um, I found some really cool street signs, took some pictures. It was just kind of like a nice little afternoon. Yeah. Just a long way home. Okay. And then lastly, and this is probably one of the coolest things I did, <laughs> I met up with my homie George. George. And <laughs> yes. Okay. Who, who is George? George is a retired professional photographer. He used to shoot weddings and he worked at Knott's Berry Farm and all sorts of things. He sold me his Hasselblad ELM like five or six years ago. That's the moon camera we talked about in our first episode, right? Yes, The it one is. that I borrowed for like a year and shot a roller yes. two through. Yes. So you actually shot with George's camera as well. I have, yeah. So I have this strange thing that I do when I get things from people and they're really nice. I check in on them. Okay. And I let them know how their camera is doing. And I've been checking up with George at least once or twice a year since I've had the camera. I'll send him some pictures occasionally and I'll ask how he's doing. And since COVID, I hadn't 
spoken with him. So I I wanted to make sure he was okay and sure. he's doing great. And he said that he had been thinking about his career and shooting and he misses it. So I was able to actually get him out of the house for a little bit. We met up in Huntington and took a walk on the little strand area and on the pier with our masks on, of course. And I got to show him how his camera's doing. <laughs> I shot some Ektar 100 and it was a really, really nice time. Oh, that sounds wonderful. Yeah. So I guess I lied when I said I haven't been shooting much because now that I'm... <laughs> yeah, you seem to be shooting a little bit more. I'm yeah, shooting a lot. <laughs> wow. Okay, Eric. Uh, yes. How have you been? Well, God, I have been not great um, this oh, past... Oh, no. I have... I've had um, a wonderful, exciting bout of food poisoning, and I still have it. So all of this episode was written and, and recorded with, with me having very acute food poisoning. So that's fun. Let that sink in. <laughs> yeah, this has been a very horrible experience. I guess I don't recommend it. If you're thinking about it, <laughs> is food poisoning right for you? I'm going to say no, probably not. <laughs> Apart from that, I have a new zine that should be available for sale by the time this episode comes out. That's pretty much a given for every other episode at this point. I'm publishing about a zine a month, and I apologize. I have decided that I'm pretty much finished with my Seattle project for the winter, the winter Seattle project. Winter's basically over. The time is changing. Uh, that marks the end of my winter and the beginning of my travel season. So yes, I made it. You did. You made it. I did. I'm so excited. <laughs> and so the, the Seattle project is done. What's left for me to do now is kind of whittle it down, figure out the pictures I, I want to keep and share with everybody and what I want to do with it. Will it be a zine? Will it be a book? Will it just be nothing? It's hard to say. Have you started planning for summer trips? Yes, I have. Um, very vaguely planning for a summer trip. And it's it's the same, you know, Midwest kind of Montana-ish sort of stuff, but hopefully not the exact same. There'll be, there'll, there'll be new, <laughs> new photos and new, and new things to see. Well, last time you were in Montana, it was raining the whole time. Yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> we have a wee bit of news for all you ultrafine lovers out there. Yeah, we've both shot ultrafine for years, and a lot of people have and just love it to death. But one thing that we sometimes forget is that ultrafine is the preferred emulsion for a lot of schools, and a lot of schools haven't been in session last year, and they're not guaranteed to be in session this coming year. Because of that, Ultrafine wasn't reordered last summer, and that was the reason. There were no school orders, so they didn't have enough to make their minimum, or they didn't feel they had enough to, to cover it, or, or whatever it was. And so there was no Ultrafine last year. And so this year, we were all really excited and hoping that, oh, this year it'll be different, and we'll have more Ultrafine. And that is not true. Because of the same reason, they are not ordering more Ultrafine. They have to place their fall order, like for fall semester, now. And they mm -hmm. don't have the orders to do that. So they they can't. So we will get no Ultrafine this year. And that's a bummer. That is a bummer. We obviously want everybody to be safe and schools to start so then they can start obviously making Ultrafine. <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, I have a feeling schools will be opening this fall. So looks like it's Arista Edu. <laughs> yeah, I think it's Arista Edu at this point, uh, which is fine. Arista Edu is Fomapan. That's what I used. I think. Yeah, I use that. That's my second, my second choice. Ultrafine is, is always my first, but Arista or Fomapan is my second choice and first at this point in 4x5. And there yeah. is some rumor going around that Ultrafine will be putting out something in 4x5. Obviously not <sighs> this year. If that happens, I will be incredibly thrilled. <laughs> I think we all will be incredibly thrilled. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath. Probably a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
every episode, we ask listeners to call in and leave us a voice message answering a question that we posted them on social media and the episode before. And this time around, what was the question? While zines are maybe the perfect inspiration, which photo books have inspired you lately? So let's push the button. Yes. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey guys, this is Hans, uh, at Hans Rosemond on Instagram, and one of my favorite books to read is Magnum Contact Sheets, and it's a compilation of a whole bunch of photographs from some very famous photographers um, from the Magnum um, group, and what's really interesting to me is not just that you get to see these great photographs, but you also see the contact sheets where they came from, so you see lots of shots on there that, uh, you know, before and after that may have been failures, um, some of which you may even think are better than the ones that ended up getting chosen, but there's a lot of essay about how they chose them, the editing process, and it's just a really, really interesting book. Ooh, contact sheets. I love contact sheets. Oh, yeah. That actually seems like a book I'd be interested in. Yeah, I like, I don't know much about that with me. I'm not a printer, but uh, even like looking into like Library of Congress archives, things like that, where you can see the full collection, not just the ones they put in the books, but the full collection of the artist's work. And you can see their fuck ups and it's a little affirming. Yeah, it makes them feel more human. It does. It really does. Hey guys, it's Zach. I'm the motorcycle librarian on Instagram. I live in Kenmore, just outside of Seattle. Uh, I'm actually out in my neighborhood right now, snapping photos of my neighborhood under a gorgeous sunset. I really, really enjoy this photo book by Eric Kim. It's called Zen of Eric. And it has his photos, but it's also sort of a treatise or philosophy of just being creative in general. I think it's, it's really, really interesting. Um, he's made up a lot of uh, other uh, similar books uh, about creativity and how to, how to harness your own creativity and how to uh, improve your photography. It really, really makes clear that this is a community of people Uh, who are sharing information. And just a few months ago, I was a beginner, so I really appreciated that. I was looking at his, he has a blog website, erickimphotography.com. And a bunch of information is on there. It's really neat. Hmm. I haven't seen any of his stuff, so I'll definitely look into it. And that is awesome that he is kind of sharing his way, how he connects with photography and you know, being creative. And yeah. And, and Kenmore, uh, Kenmore Camera. I've been in that shop a couple of times. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I highly recommend checking out the book called Becoming Not a Mother by Jackie Dives. She self-published this book, so I think you can buy it directly from her website. It's just a very, very personal and intimate look into her work and it's very very inspiring and of course have to represent a local female photographer where I live Vancouver BC so so inspiring and please check her out Jackie Dives photo and Instagram I did I did look her up I'm going to follow her on Instagram oh cool it is really cool that she shouted out someone local and a woman yes very cool (laughs) <laughs> and that was Ariella, or Ariella. Hey, y'all, it's Nick, Count Snackula, and I love photo books. Uh, two big ones for me in the past year were In Significance by Colton Allen and Somewhere Better Than This Place by Shea Waugh. Uh, there's a lot more I could say about both of them than fits in a minute, but I think they're both really worth a look. 
Colton's is a collection of incidental moments shot largely from a lower angle than what most of us employ, and his personal story is very much intertwined in his photographic process in a way that's worth learning more about. Shay's is a fantastic collection of nocturnal squares shot mainly through a TLR. And uh, finally, since I'm recording this note on Towns Van Zandt's birthday, I have to also include Good God Damn by Brian Schutmott. Towns' lyrics form the inscription to that book, and the title is fitting. Oh my gosh. So we have shooting low to the ground. Okay. We have square night photography. Yep. And then we have lyrics. There's a lot, lot of, lots to unpack here. The shooting low thing, you taught me that. I mean, it was a combination of shooting the RB67, but watching you shoot it, you shoot much lower to the ground than you really even have to with an RB. And so I was watching you shoot in Yellowstone and it's like, oh, I think I would like that. I think that there's something a little different with that. I'm short anyway, so I'm already shooting low to the ground. So why not get a little lower? <laughs> As for Shay Waugh's book, I looked her up and yeah, it's definitely worth a follow. She Her work is very different. And she's shooting with an RZ, 6-7. Oh. Yeah. As for the Towns book, I never got into Towns. I was, uh, I got into his friend, Guy Clark. Guy Clark is just like, fuck. But never got into Towns. Sorry. I know it's like everybody's just like, oh my God. But yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Hey guys, this is Kate Miller-Wilson. I love photo books. Like, I have tons and tons of them, and I look at them while I'm developing a lot of the time. But one that I just got, my friend Rebecca recommended it to me, is Encampment Wyoming. It's selections from the Laura Webb Nichols archive, and it is full of the most amazing portraits of ordinary people. On the cover, there is a picture of a woman with crutches feeding a cat that appears to have climbed halfway up her body. So, enough said. Really, more than enough said. Both of us have been doing a really deep dive on Laura Webb Nichols lately, uh, even before we heard this message from Kate. Of course, Kate. Of course, Kate. Yeah, <laughs> of course. And her her stuff is, it's very reminiscent in a way of Julia Cameron, and not just because they were both women shooting in the, the prairie, but they have very similar, almost an unprofessional, and not in a bad way, style. They both have a very similar sense of humor. Yeah. Yeah. There's you a, could there's, tell that she was funny. Yeah. Laura was younger than Cameron. Well, she's, yeah, she started younger. And so you definitely get like a more youthful feel to it. I love the shots. They're funny. They're candid. Yeah. She just has a great way of documenting the world around her. And I had been kicking around trying to figure out whether I wanted to get this book or not. It is a $65 book. <laughs> and that would be that probably the most expensive book I owned at this point, as far as buying it new. I talked to Kate about it. She was very much like, yeah, do it, which is easy to say when it's not your $65. Do it. <laughs> also easy to say when it's not your $65. <laughs> I have a feeling if I don't do it, I will regret not doing it. Hey there, Dylan Wade here on Instagram. Uh, the photo book that has inspired me the most recently is Stephen Shore's Transparencies. Small Camera Works, 1971 to 1979. The reason I was drawn to it is because, unlike his normal work, which is mostly a large format, it's all 35 millimeter, and the photos have a great vintage feel, and that's two reminders. One, that 35 millimeter is just fine. You don't have to have medium or large format to make great images, and you don't have to hunt down classic cars. These awesome vintage shots that he made weren't, he wasn't trying to make them vintage. He just shot what was around him at the time. And it kind of makes me want to get out of the house and just go take pictures of the world that we live in today. 
I think it would be interesting to see like the difference. Like you going out and shooting the world around you today is a very different look than uh, Shore going out and photographing the world that he was in. I've had this conversation with another photographer before, someone that actually lived in the same town as me. And we were talking about how much it's changed in the past 10 years Mm -hmm. and how shooting on Main Street 10 years ago seemed boring. But now with all the changes, probably would have been really interesting. And I think that is important. Like Seattle, for instance. Oh, yeah. Everything's getting torn down and you're getting condos everywhere. Oh, so. yeah. For the past decade, yeah. Yeah, so things are constantly changing. So, yeah, it might seem boring, mundane, because you drive down that street every day, but have you taken a picture of that street? Nope. Might I just want. Don't. <laughs> I just don't. To what he said about cars, I think there is a very distinct aesthetic difference between cars of the 70s and cars now. Oh, of course. The care that went into making the styles of cars in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was a different level of caring than there is now. There's also different laws governing what cars can be and, and how how dangerous they can be. And that, that certainly played into it. And because of that, there is a very different feel. The cars seem now very safe, but the cars in the 70s absolutely didn't. Even in the 70s. I mean, look at the fucking Pinto. Yeah. I, I drove a 75 Lincoln Continental. Yeah. It was my mom's. Uh, I asked her if I could have it. It was like yellow and called it the banana boat. It had a white leather interior and brown shag carpet. Yeah, I like old cars. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Dylan. It's true, though. He, he, he's he got a point. Maybe they just need to make better looking cars now. Well, I mean, if you look back at the 90s, when 90s cars looked awful, some people called them suppository cars because they had all rounded edges. Yes. Yeah, didn't they? They look like like suppositories (laughs) on wheels. And that's a very different aesthetic than you have in the 70s. So Mm. it's just gonna look different. You look at a picture from from the 90s, and that's that's a long time ago now. That's like 30 years ago now. And so that's a vintage picture, but it still looks like shit because the cars (laughs) in the 90s looked like suppositories. Working in my city's public library, I get to see pretty much every book that goes into circulation, and that includes a number of art books and photo books. But uh, one that's really resonating with me lately is Portraits of America by William Albert Allard, and the book is 20 years old, but it really just strikes a nerve with me, and I just really enjoyed it, and I recently uh, bought a copy for myself. These are some really. Have you looked in? I haven't. No, I haven't. I just I trust Denise on things. Yeah, I just trust. I just <laughs> when Denise says something is good, I just trust her on it. Honestly, she's she <laughs> works in a library. How could you not? I mentioned it last episode. The, the library finds that she has. It's always just wonderful to see. And yeah. glad she called in about one of them. Yes, me too. Thank you so much, Denise, for calling in. Hey guys, the photo book that's really been inspiring me lately was actually a gift. From Denise Grace. It's called Diamond Dreams by Walter Yost. Uh, Walter Yost is an incredible sports photographer, and odds are everyone on the planet has seen some of his work and not even known it. Diamond Dreams is about baseball. It's action photos plus some really intimate portraits. And my son is into baseball. I've been uh, looking at the book and you know just getting a few ideas, and it's uh, really really cool. Thanks. We'd like to thank Mike for calling in from the Greyhound station. <laughs> yeah, I think he was at work. I think so. I, I mean, you're a sports photographer, really. I, I guess I am. You are. I love I love baseball. I've you never do. taken pictures of, 
of baseball before, but he's super into his kids, obviously, because he's a father. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. I commend him for that. <laughs> Uh, so he's like on it with the sports and it's really, really neat that he's kind of finding inspiration from other people's photography, how they shot the sport and how he can maybe like incorporate some of that into his own work. And yeah, that's awesome. Cause I guess I could see like after, you know, game after game, you see kind of the same, you know, sliding into home picture or whatever. <laughs> yeah, you must. Yeah. I mean, baseball isn't, well, I have, I have definite opinions on baseball. <laughs> I love baseball. I Don't say do. a word. It's- <laughs> oh, well, you know what? Carlin has a whole routine about baseball. Just go listen to that. Baseball has no time limit. We don't know when it's going to end. <laughs> hey, Eric Amanya, It's Chris Visser at underscore Vistifer underscore on Instagram. Uh, long time, first time. I feel like every week I answer the question in my head, but then never record it and send it in. So I'm changing that this week because I love photo books. Uh, I've been really into Doug Dubois' work lately. He had a really great episode of Sasha Wolf's Photo Work Podcast, which I highly recommend people check out. Specifically his book, All the Days and Nights, which is a chronicle of pictures of his family from the 80, early 80s to the late 2000s. And it's a really great book focusing on his parents' divorce time with his younger brother growing up, time with his nephew and his uh, sister. And it really makes me think about like how to take portraits authentically and tell a story. It's really cinematic in its feel, and it's sad but hopeful. And I really think anyone who's interested in portraits uh, should check it out. Thanks, guys. Love what you're doing, and keep it up. It is actually a really awesome book. Oh, cool. Yeah, it it does have a cinematic look to it, and he somehow takes these scenes and just makes them they're just they're colorful they're bright and emotional Ugh, yeah and they do the colors in them do look very cinematic yes they do thank you so much chris for finally answering <laughs> yeah yeah after 38 <laughs> episodes welcome to the fold we do appreciate it <laughs> Okay, we heard from everybody, literally everybody, and so now I guess we should give our own answers. Vanya, what is what do you what what are you doing photo book wise? What, what, what are you doing? There is so many, and it makes me um, think about writing like a little list of them and putting them somewhere for other people to look at. Well, so at yeah. some point, hopefully, I will be able to do that. For now. I am going to stick with just these few books that I got recently. I went up to Crescent City uh, a few months back for my birthday. And uh, I went to this thrift store that was closing to see if it was actually closed yet. And it wasn't. It was still open. (laughs) And it was pretty wiped out. But they still had a ton of books left. And guess what? They were all free. So, of course, I went in there, found a old film photography book, which I picked up. And some um, Time Life books called The Fabulous Century. I was able to grab three of the volumes. I think there's like six volumes altogether. 1870 to 1900, 1900 to 1910, and 1960 to 1970. Ooh, okay. <laughs> yes. They... They are a socio-political pictorial of those centuries with many full and two-page photographs of some of the most iconic scenes, um, as well as people. They cover anything from youth to revolt. I like that I can see all the credited photographers in the back, as well as some images I've actually never seen before, especially mm. the the older um, 
Oh, sure. Books. Yeah. The one I have here <laughs> is Marley's. Uh, it's the 1960 and 70s. She really wanted that one. But I noticed myself grabbing it and combing through it often to see the painted flowers on Twiggy's eye. <laughs> JFK silhouette, <laughs> silhouetted in his Oval Office. Photographs of Shirley Chisholm. Rachel Carson, Vietnam, Hippies, and NASA. It's quite a collection, and it's just neat to see these photos huge right in front of me. So seeing it printed in a book and just full bleed, all the big pages, it's a different feeling. And you're going to get the whole set? Yes, I am. (laughs) I think I'm actually going to give you all these three. Oh, nice. I'll be able to look at Twiggy. (laughs) Right in the eye, yes. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about yours. What did you pick? I'm very interested. Well, I don't do a lot of photo books. Um, I (laughs) I knew you were going to say that. Oh, whatever. (laughs) So when you do a film photography podcast, photo books inspiring you can mean a couple of different things. Like this past week, a couple of photo books about Marion Post Walcott inspired me to write the feature coming up in the back half of the show. But as for what's been inspiring my photography, right now, because I'm planning like summer trips, I'm planning to go back to Kansas, I've been really hitting Heartland, the photographs of Terry Evans. Terry Evans is a Kansas photographer who started photographing people and then moved into the landscape. And she even shoots aerial sometimes, actually quite a lot. And honestly, I didn't think I'd be into aerial photography, but it's all about composition and it's amazing. (laughs) It's the landscapes that are really inspiring to me and her close-ups of grass. And she kind of intermixes them with landscapes and with aerials. And so you get a a very close-up picture of grass looking down on it. And then the next page, you get this, this huge aerial photograph and they kind of mirror each other. This book is a kind of a survey of several of the other books she's done. It's sort of a greatest hits compilation. And I'm always suspicious of people who listen to greatest hits compilations. Always. No exceptions. But this is a good place to start with her work. So maybe start there. So what's really great is that it's really cheap. It's a beautiful, huge square cloth hardback. And you can get it for less than $10. I don't wow. know if they just printed too many or they sent out to a bunch to, a bunch to libraries and the libraries are just selling off their old stock. I don't know why this is, but get it while you can because it's such a good book. So start here and move on to her other works, such as Disarming the Prairie or Prairie Stories or The Inhabited Prairie or Prairie, Image of the Ground or Sky. Or Yeah, she's into the prairie and she <laughs> shot the hell out of it. You'll be having one of her books coming your way very shortly, Vanya. Ooh, that's exciting. It is. So one more thing I kind of want to mention before we, we move on. It was really neat hearing what's inspiring people. And honestly, we can't help with what inspires us. We see something and we're inspired by it or turned off by it. So we can't really help either of those things. But what we can help is what we bring into our lives. And we had, I think, five five or six men call in and we thank all of them. And all of them are really good inspirations. But for the most part, with the exception of one, the dudes stuck to the dudes. And I think think this is a little bit of a problem. I'm not saying that we shouldn't buy books by or about male photographers, but I'm proposing maybe we do a one-for-one thing. So if you go to any like bookstore and you go to their photo book section, about 90% of the photo books are going to be by or about men. Mm-hmm. So you're already at a huge disadvantage here. So buying a book by a woman photographer, every time you buy a book by a man photographer, in a way it levels it out. More importantly, it shows us guys a perspective that we wouldn't typically see. So it's not just good to support the women. It's really good for us dudes as well. I think so too. You get a different perspective, a a woman's perspective uh, against a a men's perspective 
could look completely different or not. Because it's not like they're shooting different things. You know, portraits are portraits, street scenes are street scenes, landscapes are Mm -hmm. landscapes. But how a man captures that may be very different from how a woman captures that. And as men, we may not really even notice that. It may not even be something that just dawns on us, but when we see it, it, it is there. Just an idea, not reprimanding anybody, be inspired by who you're inspired by. But also don't forget that there's another 50% of the population out there. Yo, what up, my dudes? Tiffin Sinclair dropping in to give you the latest scoop in the world of AI-based image manipulation. I should preface this by saying that All Through a Lens podcast, along with its subsidiaries, co-hosts, and film developing division, i.e. Dev Party, are tragically not sponsored by MyHeritage and its heebie-jeebie-inducing deep nostalgia image animation service. With that out of the way, let's get into it. So if you've been stuck in the darkroom pumping out 8x10 prints of whatever seems to float your boat these days... You might have missed the latest craze circulating the interwebs. MyHeritage, an online genealogy platform, offers a service so adequately dubbed Deep Nostalgia, through which by way of AI technology it is able to analyze and upload an image, preferably a portrait, and make use of various algorithmic sequences to apply human-like facial expressions to the picture, therefore making it seem like it has come to life. It's alive, some might say. If you're still having a difficult time grasping the concept, let me put it to you this way. Do you remember that one time you went into that old antique shop that seemingly popped out of nowhere? Do you also remember how all of the framed images housed in the back of the shop just sort of seemed to follow you with their eyes? Do you also remember how the one thing you don't remember is how you got home that day? Yeah, I don't know how to make it any more obvious where I stand in regards to this service. It's a bit weird if you ask me. Sure, as with all things, it has its place. A majority of Deep Nostalgia users make use of the service in order to upload images of loved ones who have come and gone and reanimate them, in a sense, all from the comfort of their smartphone. If you want to witness dear old Aunt Sue giving you the stink eye once more, this service might be for you. I, on the other hand, would like for the portraits of my loved ones to remain as static as possible, mainly because I'm concerned of what I'll do if I witness Sue giving me the look once again. After all, there's a reason why she's dearly departed. Yeah, uh, I haven't been the same after visiting that antique shop. But if you're curious to know what an actual, literal moving picture looks like, check it out. I promise I won't wail on you, nerd. Anyways, I gotta go. I'm expecting a call soon. Later. Did you hear what just happened there? Yes, of course I did. Yeah, that was Tiffin. Her new segment showed up in episode 36, too. Yeah, we kind of just threw it in there to surprise everybody. (laughs) So you might know her from what you've just heard from episode 36, or you might even know her from the Fit With Film podcast. But however it is you know her, she is Tiffin Sinclair, our potentially new, newly potential on-the-spot correspondent. And, oh, let's just give her a call. Absolutely. Hello, hello. Hello. What's up, my dude? Hey. Hi. Hey, Vanya. Hey, Eric. Hello, hello. (laughs) How are you doing? 
I'm doing well, doing well. Excited to be here. Thank you. Okay. I'm glad you're excited to be here. We're excited to have you. <laughs> so let's go for it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. We don't normally ask people like basic like film photography life info, but we just thought it would be really interesting to kind of get uh, what your background was with photography and then film photography. So, okay. So I should preface this by saying that the way I got into film photography is the only wholesome thing about me. Um, <laughs> so I, right now I've been shooting film for about a year and a half now. And I had shot digital back in high school when I was going, you know, through my artsy phase. But then I became too obsessed with gear and I was like, no, this isn't working out because I'm not doing it for the right reasons. Um, and then I started college and that whole photographic pursuit just fell through the cracks. You know, mm -hmm. I graduate from college and I head back home to move some stuff in with my dad. Now, my dad, super awesome, high quality guy. And I'm not just saying that because we're related, right? <laughs> but he's kind of like a hoarder, dudes. So like he has this attic and this attic of his is known throughout our family because he just has like the weirdest things. I'm talking about like cartoons that are recorded on VHS tapes that I'm like 100% certain are from another dimension because I have never heard of them. Um, he's also obsessed with like collecting old soda cans and bottles. So, you know, you kind of get the picture. So we're moving stuff in and despite, you know, his hoarding tendencies, everything is incredibly organized. So we're being like very meticulous about where my stuff goes. So I move a box that was stacked atop another box and I find a bunch of like old negatives, pictures, and I think it was like a, a chin on zoom camera. And here we go. I find three rolls of gold 200 that had been shot, but were not developed. So I'm losing my mind, right? I'm like, holy shit, what is this, right? And then he comes over and he's like, well, you know, this is film and all that good stuff. Um, so fast forward, I send the rolls off to a lab to be developed and I get my scans back. Um, also, fun fact, um, I lost my mom to like breast cancer when I was a senior in high school. So mm -hmm. all the pictures I had ever seen of her up until that point, I had already seen. Um, so with that in mind, you can imagine how totally stoked I was when the rolls I sent off to the lab or just pictures of her and dad when I think they were like still in their dating phase. Oh. So like I was absolutely, you know, fucking over the moon. It was like the best feeling ever. Um, so in the back of my mind, I'm thinking these images survived in these canisters for so long and they were fine. Um, also the negatives in that box were also, you know, perfectly preserved. So I'm like film this medium. It's kind of super rad, right? Like I don't think an SD card can go inside my dad's attic and like make it out to tell the tale, right? But these these film rolls did. Um, so yeah, like I just picked up a film camera shortly after and, and started snapping pictures of anything and you know anyone that, that meant something to me. Um, so I guess to finally answer your question, uh, I got into film not for like aesthetic reasons, but I guess for like the sake of posterity. Mm. Love it. <laughs> I share a similar story the idea of film in general. And I say that all the time with like SD cards and, you know, whatever new camera is out right now, is it even going to be able to turn on in like 50 years? <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. <laughs> so we would like you to do a regular segments for us. We've talked okay. about, and you've done one, and we, and we really like that. And so to maybe bring you on in a more regular capacity, we have some, I guess, more employment-type questions that we'd like to ask. Most definitely. Okay. So 
Can you tell us a challenge or a conflict you've faced in photography and how you've dealt with it? There have been some times where situations have obviously been out of my control um, because I am very capable, very capable adult. Um, (laughs) So the chemicals, it was the chemistry, not my fault. Again, not my fault. Um, But the chemistry did let me down, not I let it down. So what I did uh, to remedy that was I sought out a strategy and implemented various action plans Mm, um, mm. to coordinate a proper developing system. Mm, Therefore, I was able to get negatives. That's perfect. That's exactly what we were looking for. Thank you. Thank you. Vanya? You've been doing a lot of night photography. Uh, What do you look for in a good night shot? So I look for scenes with like a, a singular light source or small sources of light just so I can basically eyeball it when I meet her. Um, because as you know, unless you're really bougie and have like a very fancy light meter, the meters that us common folk use don't really work well in the dead of night unless, you know, you run over to the scene and meter the getaway or spot meter the getaway. But in, in terms of subject matter, I look for uh, very solitary things. So like a bench, a tree, I'm obsessed with trees, Um, and maybe even like a well-lit side of a building, things like that. Because at the end of it all, I'm not curious to know how the entire scene will come out. Honestly, I'm not even chasing, you know, like a good picture, Um, but rather I'm interested in, in discovering how light will behave and be captured on the emulsion. Um, So for example, will it flare out? If I stack filters and up the exposure time, Will it become somewhat diffused? Or again, because of the filters and the light source and the type of film that I'm using that evening, will will it tint the scene? Sometimes I get cooler images or like greener tones on the same roll with the same filters, but the only thing that changed was, was the light source and the exposure times. So I'm basically out there just experimenting. It's, it's very unstructured. Okay, so returning to the more serious questions. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, what would you say is your greatest weakness? My, I have a wonky eye. Everyone knows this. They don't particularly line up as they should. So looking through the viewfinder, what I see on, on the right side is not exactly what I see on the left side. So I'm, I'm hoping you're willing to, to look past that when we meet and I sh- inevitably shake your hand and, and accept your job offer, which I'm sure I will be receiving. Oh, uh, well, uh, certainly, and, and good use of pun there, so uh, I definitely. Okay, uh, Vanya? Okay, is night shooting any different from day shooting, apart from the obvious? I guess for me, it's like you sort of enter a different world during what I like to call vamp hours, um, and that's what makes night shooting different, in my opinion. Aside mm-hmm. from, you know, like the whole technical aspect of it, like you have to use faster film stocks that are like a higher ISO and stuff like that. We both live in LA, so finding places without cars and people <laughs> can be really difficult unless it's in the dead of night. Yeah, I've never <laughs> shot. I've never done night shots at all. I've never done it. Huh. You I mean, haven't. I have, I've never done it. Are you scared? A little. Again, a serious question. Would you rather fight a duck the size of a horse or 50 duck-sized horses? I would much rather fight... A duck the size of a horse, because I'm sure I could just feed it a lot of loaves of bread, and then uh, whatever happens 
will happen and I'll be able to distract it with the bread and I'll be able to, you know, get a couple punches in. Not that I would ever even dream of punching a duck the size of a horse. So please don't call PETA. Um, But yeah, I feel like it would be a lot more manageable just as I am able to manage any task that you may give me, I can implement various strategies and um, find a way to manage and complete these duck horse size tasks that you'll give me. <laughs> that is un- unless, of course, we give you 50 duck size horses. <laughs> well, okay. If that was the case, I would lie and say I was going to fight them, but then I would just lay down and let them like be adorable. <laughs> okay, that's true. <laughs> that all around too. me. I'd be like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Did you imagine 50 duck-sized horses? They're oh. so adorable. Maybe ponies? Little ponies? Yeah, my little ponies, basically. Yeah. Oh. Oh I would love that. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. My no, turn. No, um, please continue. We kind of talked about this a little bit already, but what are your choices in emulsion and why? Okay, for sure. Um, Portra 160 for medium format and um, Kodak Pro Image 100 for okay. Uh, mainly Portra 160 because, well, I mean, it's not as expensive as 400, but mm-hmm. it's what I've been experimenting with the most um, with my night photography. So I kind of know what I'm going to get from that. And um, with Pro Image, I just, I just love Pro Image. There's just something about it that I can't, it's, I can't compare it to anything else. I'm a <laughs> for Pro Image. Is that Kodak Pro, Pro yeah. Image? Yeah. Is it? You might know it as Pro Image. Oh, there we go. Yes. That is more my speed. Yes. So um, where do you see yourself in five years? Where do I see myself in five years is an excellent question. I see myself living my best life at the top of the hunter-gatherer food chain, taking down duck sized horses or horse sized ducks for the sake of of the company and for the sake of profit and for the sake of everything i see myself being the person in charge i see myself taking over your job buddy you know what i'm gonna come out and say that's where i see myself in five years i'm i'm so glad (laughs) you said that you're looking at your protege let me tell you that perfect that is that is perfect um i can now get my 401k in order there you go. And, I mean, you're doing me a favor by bringing me on board. If anything, I'm doing you a favor. Uh, Vanya? Yes. Uh, tell us about Fit with Film. When, why, how. And also, the first episodes seemed like they were trailers for episodes that didn't really exist. <laughs> yeah, so Fit with Film came... Um, it really was so I was going through like a very difficult time in in terms of like photography like I was messing up like anything that can go wrong in a film photographer's life it was happening to me you know I was messing up my my film and development I was opening the the back of my film camera before rewinding so it was basically just a a long series of unfortunate events that led up to fit with film and i would be posting about it on instagram i'd be like oh well in this on this episode of you know whatever this is what happened so one day i i had i was at my wits end like i had reached it and i was like you know what let me just do a a voice recording of, of this and i think the first episode was uh 
Happy Sunday, film weenies. I hope all of you had a fantastic Halloween, and I hope most of you are waking up from your four loco and candy corn-induced comas. On this podcast episode of Fit With Film, inspired by my multiple failures and mental breakdowns, we're going to be discussing how to find your will to live after you've absolutely obliterated a roll of film with burnt toast chemicals. If you're on the verge of throwing in the towel, if you're telling yourself, hmm, maybe I should send everything off to a lab, after all, that's what all the non-masochistic, non-self-loathing film shooters are doing, you're not going to want to this one stay tuned and then from there on like people were like oh is this a real thing and i was like no it's not a real thing um i'm sorry about that and then next week i was like well i guess i might as well what's the next thing what happened to me that week and let me just you know make a quote-unquote little preview um of what happened and then it just kept on going on and on and on everything i talk about in in fit with film like it's happened it's based on like real life Tiffin, do you like movies about gladiators? I am a pacifist and do not believe in violence and gore, but I'm trying to get a reading as to what answer is going to get me this job. Mm. So I'm going to say, yes, I thoroughly enjoy movies about gladiators. This is Sparta. Have you ever done time in a Turkish prison? What type of girl do you take me for? Fair enough. Of course I have. Uh, Vanya? Yes. Your witness? So, Tiffin, do you have any future projects that you're working on that you would like to discuss? I've been trying to document, like, little mom-and-pop donut shops because the whole pandemic hit, right? And and I've been seeing that they are closing down. Um, and it's kind of sad, right, to, to, to bear witness to that. And there are some that are still you know, up and running miraculously. And this was something that I wanted to do before, you know, the whole COVID situation hit. And I kind of didn't, I didn't pull the trigger on that. And, and now that I see and I look back and I and I see that they're closed up, I'm kind of regretting and kicking myself for that. So I kind of want to like do that now. And and I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do with it. It's, it's still in the works, but I just want to go out, take pictures of these little mom and pop donut shops and... I don't know, make a zine, do something. I love it. I have two donut shops 20 steps from me, unfortunately. <laughs> I think this is our final question with the, this part of the interview. Uh, would you <laughs> refer to yourself as a dog person or a cat person? Well, the reading that I'm getting from you is that you want me to be a cat person. So I am a cat person. Perfect. I am a cat person. Meow, meow. <laughs> a literal cat person. I am a cat woman. That's why I go out at night. Ah, full circle. <laughs> All makes sense now. Oh my goodness. Should we ask her the answer machine question? Oh shit, what is it? Oh shit, what is it? <laughs> what is it? It's the book one, right? <laughs> well, zines are maybe the most perfect inspiration. Which photo books have inspired you lately? So it's not a photo book per se. It's from from it's a painter. So it's, it's John Bader's Road Well Taken. Hmm. I don't know if you guys are familiar. No, um, not at all. The art that he does, he basically takes pictures and then he just like paints those pictures. Oh, 
who makes a painting of, I know there's like a proper name for it. All the art geeks are going to come after us for not knowing what this type of <laughs> Let him come. His paintings are like of diners and very just like old Americana. And I don't know, that's just been, been doing something for me lately. Hmm. I'll definitely have to look that up. That sounds like yeah. fun. Uh, and the, the answer machine question that we have for next episode is, is there a moral or a trait of some kind that you learned when you were young that you apply to photography now, like a non-photography lesson or whatever that you've learned that you apply? Of photography now. Uh, I don't know if this is exactly what you're asking for, but I was taught to like never step on grass. Yes. Yes. Well, okay, well, never step on never grass. Never step on grass. Yeah. My friends think I'm like neurotic as hell for this, but um, I was taught to never step on grass. So even though I know the composition I am after requires me to step on grass, like on another person's grass, I'm not going to do it. Yep. And, and yeah, I mean, it's more of a hindrance than anything, but I mean, I, there's, there's nothing illegal about it, but I was like, don't step on grass. So I, yeah, I just, I don't step on grass. <laughs> yeah. So maybe like, I'll, if it's on a sidewalk, like the tripod will be just like right on the edge, right? Before <laughs> it goes, it, it goes on the property. Oh, wait. So even your tripod, like you can't even poke yeah, a leg no, out. Like, don't, don't leave any mark. Yeah. I don't, I don't know where it comes from. Yeah. That's, that's the big one for me. Yeah. I'm there. Remember and when we were shooting in Bison, mm. that house with like the blinds, with the broken window and the blinds sticking out of it, clearly not yeah. a lived in house. I wasn't, I did not go you were on the, the street. Grass. I was on, I was on the sidewalk. Yeah. I do remember that. I do. Tiffin. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Yes, thank you. We will obviously be in touch. Yes, definitely. We will. Yes, certainly. Not a, don't ghost me after the first date. <laughs> of course no. not. No, absolutely <laughs> not. All right. Uh, all right. Well, you have a good day today. You too, guys. Have a great right. Sunday. You too. All right. <laughs> all right. Bye. 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 As part of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the Farm Security Administration was established to work against rural poverty brought about by the stock market crash of 1929. Starting in 1935, this agency, under the command of Roy Stryker, sent out a slew of photographers to capture the extent of this poverty on film, as well as the effects the FSA programs were having. We covered a few FSA photographers in episode 18, looking at the work of Walker Evans, Carl Midens, Ben Sean, and Dorothea Lang. These photographers were with the FSA from the start, but today we'd like to talk about someone who joined up in 1938 and yet still became one of the most prolific shooters of the program. Marianne Post was born on June 7, 1910 in Montclair, New Jersey. Her parents were well off, and she and her sister Helen wanted for nothing. Despite the wealth, it was not a happy home. In the midst of a messy divorce, the Post sisters were sent to a boarding school in Connecticut. Her mother moved to Greenwich Village, and the sisters would visit often. Marianne's mother was a progressive. She helped establish health clinics and birth control programs throughout the city. As Marion got older, she became part of the art scene. Needing a steady income, in 1930, Marion took a job working as a teacher for a lumber mill in Massachusetts. It was in a private school for children of the mill owners and top supervisors. I lived in the boarding house where most of the single workers lived, and there I saw and was confronted with the vast gap socially and economically between the classes, the haves and the half-nots, the employers and workers. And this was an eye-opening experience that was really too conspicuous to be ignored. In 1932, she made her way to Europe to study dance, then moved to Austria to study child psychology. 
Helen, the older of the Post girls, was there as well. She was studying photography under Truda Fleischmann, and soon Marion joined. As the photography scene grew around them, so did fascism. It was the mid-1930s in Austria. There were assassinations and bombings. According to one source, Marion even saw Hitler speak in Berlin. She was horrified watching previously rational people falling under the lure and sway of a budding dictator. In Vienna, at the urging of Trude Fleischmann, she bought a 4x4 Roloflex, a 127 twin-lens reflex camera. While the Roly was very popular at the time, the small Roly, the 4x4, was sort of a candid camera. It was small enough to use for that type of thing which was being done at that time in Vienna, at least in Austria, a great deal. They were just starting to do a lot of candid pictures in the theater with no extra lighting of any kind, and so my sister was a friend of a photographer, well, two photographers really, in Vienna, Trude Fleischmann, who is now living in New York City and is a portrait photographer, and she recommended the Roliflex. I just said that I would like a camera, and it was a good camera, and it was a very good price at the time. We had a good exchange. She thought it was a very versatile camera, so I bought it just before I left. In Austria, her friends were targeted because they were Jewish. Swastikas were burned on their front lawns, and their fences were torched. It was too much for their family, and Helen and Marion were ordered to return home. Back in New York, 1935, they continued with photography and such progressive pursuits as helping their Jewish friends flee Europe. Marion began a teaching career but shot theater photos for Stage Magazine, her first paying gig. In New York, she became a freelance photographer and met Ralph Steiner. Teaching, she discovered, wasn't her calling, and she sought out more steady photography jobs. In Philadelphia, she began working for the Philadelphia Evening Bulletin, but being the only woman on staff, she was relegated to the fashion section. Still, she learned how to shoot a speed graphic, a skill that would shortly come in handy. Fed up with this, she vented to Ralph Steiner, who soon took a portfolio of her work to Roy Stryker. Now, you might remember that Roy Stryker ran the program. By the time he saw Marion's work, the FSA had already spent three years sending photographers like Walker Evans and Dorothea Lang to document the Dust Bowl and depression-stricken areas of the country. I had become somewhat interested in politics in Vienna. I was there during the assassination of Dolphus, and of course Hitler was then on the scene in Germany, and everything was rather stirred up, and I had friends who were rather liberal and interested also in these things. So I had felt in the newspaper work that there wasn't much that I was really interested in that I was photographing, and I was looking for something that would be, well, more useful, or had more purpose to it, I suppose. Marion traveled to Washington, D.C. to meet with Stryker, and she was hired on the spot. In a letter dated July 14, 1938, he outlined their arrangement. You will receive four and a half cents a mile when you travel in your own car. This is to pay gasoline, oil, and a certain amount of depreciation. We supply you with film, flash bulbs, and some equipment. If you desire a special camera or cameras, I'm afraid you'll have to supply that at the present time. It is our desire to standardize as far as possible on the Leica contacts and the three and a quarter by four and a quarter speed graphic. Before leaving on her first FSA assignment in the West Virginia coal fields, Stryker had Marion look through the photos in the file their term for archive. There she saw the work of Evans, Lang, Rothstein, and all other FSA photographers. I didn't feel very adequate at that point. I hadn't done anything but the newspaper work for the last year and a half or so, but Roy was very understanding and let me browse around in the files and gave me some literature to read, of course, as he was always doing, throwing books at us. As I say, I wasn't sure that I could manage it and do as well as a job they had done. I mean, they had done such a superb job to me that I was afraid that I couldn't live up to the standards that they had set. 
and I never had worked in the field with both handling the captioning and the traveling and the sending back of the material and not having my own dark room. I wasn't sure I'd like that, and that arrangement of sending the stuff back and having them develop and printed, this worried me a little bit. But it turned out very well because Roy gave us a great deal of freedom in that regard. Her first assignments were close to Washington. Through the autumn of 38, she was in West Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Maryland. With the Leica and Speed graphic issued to her by the FSA, as well as her Rolly, she photographed the people and landscapes. This was a far cry from her normal work in theater and fashion. Stryker, who managed mostly male photographers, had some advice for how a woman should behave herself in the field. I'm glad you've learned that you can't depend on the wilds of femininity when you're in the wilds of the South. Colorful bandanas and brightly colored dresses, etc., aren't part of our photographer's equipment. The closer you get to what the backcountry recognizes as a normal dress for a woman, the better you are going to succeed as a photographer. I know this will probably make you mad, but I can tell you another thing. That slacks are not part of your attire when you're in the backcountry. You are a woman, and a woman can't never be a man. Marion's reply to Stryker set the mood of the relationship for the years to come. Now, Grandfather, you listen to me for a minute, too. All you say is perfectly true, but I just wish you had been along with me for just part of the day looking for something particularly with pockets. Let us agree that all photographers need pockets, badly, and that female photographers look slightly conspicuous and strange with too many film pack magazines and rolls and synchronizers stuck into their shirt fronts, and that too many filters and whatnots held between the teeth prevent one from asking many necessary questions. Now, this article of clothing with large pockets must be cool, washable, not too light or bright a color. Try and find it. You can see you touched on a sore subject. Now with that summer exchange out of the way, Marion set off. Unlike most of the FSA photographers before her, Marion's focus wasn't simply on poverty. She shot everything, and even her early work is a mixture of downtrodden coal miners, well-to-do businessmen, and farmers. She spent a good deal of time with her subjects. Her mother had spent some time in that part of West Virginia distributing birth control information. She gave Marion advice, such as looking for the little things, the clothes hanging on the line in order to better understand the people. Marion's takeaway on her first assignment seemed to energize her even more. I found the people not as apathetic as I had expected they might be. They weren't too beaten down. Of course, many of them were, but they were people with hope and some of them still had a little drive. Although, of course, their health was so bad it was telling. They still, most of them, or many of them, seemed to have some hope left, which surprised me. Marion was friendly and open, and this put folks at ease. It also helped her get into places she wouldn't normally be able to get into. There were juke joints and bars, black neighborhoods, and churches. Places where she'd seem incredibly out of place without at least an escort. They certainly were suspicious very often of my traveling alone and staying in motels or rooming houses and that sort of thing, or wandering around at night, or there were lots of places I couldn't go into because I was a woman. Now, I took some pictures in some saloons and places of that kind in Mississippi, but I had to have somebody with me. But it didn't always work. In South Carolina, Marion found herself in a situation. There was one time when they weren't too cooperative, when I was driven out, which was in South Carolina, and I made the mistake of being too conspicuous, I think, in my dress and in my appearance. I had a convertible, and I had the top down. I was, this was early in the game, I learned. But I had been in the sun a lot, and I was quite brown, and I had a very bright-colored scarf, headscarf, which I had gotten in Europe. I had on some kind of jangly earrings, and I didn't realize what I must have looked like, and I went into this area. 
with my car loaded with, with stuff, and I literally frightened the people. They began dragging their kids away, and I thought that I was going, that I was a gypsy, only a modern gypsy in an automobile, and that I would come in and kidnap their children. Certainly, I was not understood. I was a foreigner, and they, you know, told me to get out, and were disagreeable about it. For the winter of 1938, she was assigned to Florida. There, she took a number of photos showing the more wealthy people of the state, but with wealth, came another issue. Oh, I didn't have too much trouble. They did take my camera, but they didn't maul me. I mean, they didn't throw things at me or arrest me or anything of that kind. I was trying to take some pictures of the other side of it, and I had taken some of the racetrack and of people in the stands, and I was trying to take some in some of the gambling places, and they did take my camera. I got it back again, but they took the film and told me to get out and stay out. And I didn't think that particularly was because I was a woman. They were annoyed that I felt I could get away with it because I was a woman. Which was exactly what I was trying to do. In the spring of 39, Marion photographed Georgia for the first time. Basing herself out of Atlanta, her eye turned to city life. With her 35mm, she became a street photographer, capturing domestic servants, sales girls, and the complex interactions between the white and black communities. With her speed graphic, she visited factories, repair shops, and nearby farms. Traveling through southeastern Georgia in May, she took her first color shots. She'd shoot color sporadically over the next couple of years. 120 of those photos remain, and she probably didn't shoot too many more than that. During the summer and fall, she returned to the Carolinas, but spread out to Mississippi and Alabama as well. By September, she was in Tennessee and shooting color once again. Here, she captured a minor strike, life around Memphis, and all aspects of the cotton industry, from picking to the exchange. Marion seemed to do well with the miles, and that was despite her hardships. Driving at night is definitely not a good idea for a girl alone in the South. And you know, I'm not a sissy. Everything closes up, including gas stations, and everyone goes to bed, and the only ones who stay up are bums. If anything goes wrong, you're out of luck, and no one understands a girl out alone after dark. The roads are awful, and often one must go back and try another way. Or walk across the field and muck, because the car is too low. The beginning of 1940 found Marion in Vermont. She had pointed out to Stryker that she had been on the road working for nearly two years without a break. He sent her to St. Albans, where she photographed snow and perhaps got a little rest. I enjoyed that very much. Nobody had done anything of snow or cold except some of Vaishon's pictures later on of the blizzards of the West. But very little had been done in the file. There was very little in the file at the time of New England and that kind of ruggedness. She shot snow in Maryland as well, this time with Arthur Rothstein, and it was then that he took the iconic photo of her crawling under a barbed wire fence, speed graphic in one hand, Zeiss Ecoflex 3 in the other. By May, she was back in Memphis, shooting color of the corn planting and documenting the cotton carnival. Before the month was out, she saw Arkansas and Mississippi. Her work was evolving, in a sense. She was used to this life now. She wasn't hunting for poverty, but capturing the landscape, inhabitants included. I think... Landscape can tell a great deal about living conditions as well as the people and the clothes they wear and the diapers on the line, or whatever other evidence there is around. I think the landscape and the beauty of it, or the vastness of it, can tell a great deal about the country and the people. And for her, it was about the people. She cared deeply for them and grew furious when she thought that fellow government program workers did not. Typically, before she entered a location, FSA workers would set up arrangement with families so that she could photograph them. In Tennessee, however, they didn't do their job, and Marilyn had to dig them up herself. 
I had to go out and get the family, scrub the children, dress them, drag them downtown, and then cook their dinner. It was difficult and practically impossible to get a man for the picture, as they were either working on WPA or sick or drunk or in the hospital, or refused to do it. We used to pregnant woman, and when the investigator lady remonstrated her for her bad behavior and breaking her promise to be a good Christian, she said, Well, ma'am, I sorry's, but I had to make my rent somehow. Jesus Christ, these social workers are fierce, inhumane, stupid pricks. I can't call them enough names. The road and its conditions were getting to Marion. It's not that she lost hope. She saw that all around her, but rather she seemed to be losing faith in those who were better off, in those who could help but wouldn't. Several times when I've had my car parked alongside of the road and taken pictures nearby, a cop or state trooper has come up, watched me, examined the camera, and searched through the car, and questioned and looked at all of my identification. The bastards can take their own sweet time about it and ask many irrelevant, and sometimes personal, and slightly impertinent questions, too. I've had to visit more than one sheriff's office and write my signature and go through the same routine, but the worst of it is the time they consume just chewing the fat with you, making you drink a Coca-Cola, showing you everything in the place. They haven't anything else to do and they don't feel like working anyway. It's too hot and they think you're crazy anyhow. If there's a series of Marion's work that's iconic, it might be her photos shot in Kentucky. She was struck by the poverty and backwardness of the mountain country. She didn't realize that people still live this way. Most still rode mules. The nearly 2,000 photos she took in the autumn of 1940 share with us the life of the Kentucky mountaineers. From a makeshift funeral to a family scratching out their own coal to ginning sorghum and attending school, her photos were taking on a more personal feel. She not only got to know the locals, but got to know the land, the mountains, and the creeks. We borrowed a car the first day, had to be pulled out of a creek by a mule, then later hauled out of the sand, and finally had a flat miles from everything and no jack. Tore down a fence post, and while our driver, a young kid who was the son of the school janitor, tried to prop the car up, I was down on my belly in the creek bed piling rocks under it. Her speed graphic caught all of these scenes as well. While 1940 might have been her busiest year so far, from New England snows to the Kentucky mountains, 1941 saw her traveling west after wintering in Florida and photographing migrant workers. By summer, she was in Montana, having shot all along the way. In Montana, it was rodeos and wheat. It was towns like Homestead, Haver, and Great Falls. Here, the light was amazing, and the land was open and beautiful. I tried to get the feeling of space and distance and solitude in some pictures using various devices. The road, telephone poles and wires, long strains from up above going straight on as the roads do, and looking across country with trains flat across the picture, very tiny like toys, and telephone signs on posts along the road, and of course little towns and elevators sticking up out of much space. At this point, she was shooting very little, if any, 35mm. Most of her work from this period was 3 and a quarter by 4 and a quarter, with a good deal of 6 by 6 from the Icoflex thrown in. While her photos are monumental, something even more life-changing happened to her in the spring of 41. She met and fell in love with Lee Wolcott, assistant to the Secretary of Agriculture, a widower with two kids. By June, hardly two months after they met, they were married. 
As she traveled through the West, she tried to make her work life mesh with her new life. As she photographed the wheat in Montana, Stryker was making plans for her next assignments. This would mean more time away from Lee and their new family. The subjects Stryker wanted her to shoot were not all that interesting to Marion. For his part, Lee flew off the handle and demanded that Stryker be fired. In a huge dick move, Lee also insisted that all of her work be changed from Marion Post to Marion Post Wolcott. This forced FSA workers to spend hours changing the captions of thousands of the photos Marion submitted. She wintered that year with Lee in Virginia and resigned from the FSA in February the next year. Now, here is where most short biographies leave off, explaining that she never returned to photography, implying that Lee forced her to give up her dreams. And while the inner workings of their relationship are really unknown, this doesn't seem to be the case. She set aside to raise Lee's two kids and then two of their own together. They lived on a subsistence back-to-nature farm in Virginia, but with Lee still working in Washington, Marion ran the place on her own. With World War II, they hardly saw each other, as Lee pulled longer and longer days. Now and then, she'd photograph her children and the neighbors, giving away her services because she could. In 1954, a dozen years after leaving the FSA, they moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where they both taught school, Lee at the local university, and Marion at a convalescent home for Navajo children. In 1959, Lee worked for the State Department, and for the next nine years, they lived in Iran, Pakistan, Egypt, and India. And it was here where she picked up photography again. In fact, one of the deciding factors for her was the promise that she could do some photography and that a darkroom would be available. This was true to an extent. In Tehran, she had access to a darkroom, but it was always being used by one of the local photographers. Because of this abuse, they closed down the darkroom and she put down the camera once again. For the most part, she taught and helped establish birth control clinics in Iran, Pakistan, and India, much like her mother did in the States a few decades prior. Now at a Tehran, she documented the culture and the people around her. Her color work she sent back to the States to get developed, but she tried to keep her black and white work local, sending it to local labs. She tried a bunch of them, but the quality wasn't up to her liking. When they moved to Pakistan in the mid-60s, she was determined to shoot slides and edit them into a larger, concise body of work. When they moved to Egypt shortly after, she brought her slides with her. And then, when the Six-Day War erupted between Israel, Jordan, Syria, and Egypt in June of 1967, the Americans were evacuated almost without notice. So I knew that, well, I had to go. I didn't want to, but they insisted that the women go. Leave. We were told that everything would probably be taken from us, that we could only take out some clothing and things like that. Probably our cameras and film and everything of that type would be taken. And so the night before, Lee and I were sitting there packing and going through what we should take out, and I was loaded up like a donkey with all kinds of income tax things and all kinds of crazy things. And there wasn't much room to take much else. But I felt that I didn't want to leave any photographs or slides. A lot of my slides were slides of that time, from the Egyptian government. They were mostly slides, but I had given many of those to the Pakistani family planning program to use, which they did in their teaching. So those just stayed there. I didn't bring them back or have them printed, and then the rest... The night before we left, we just sat on the couch and... I just tore up and cut up and burned all kinds of negatives, and mostly slides. When the Wolcotts returned, they moved to California. 
Marion began to shoot color film in earnest, documenting the counterculture in San Francisco. It was around this time that her FSA work was being rediscovered. She even helped curate a few shows in New York, supervising the printing from the negatives held in the National Archives. In the 80s, at the age of 70, she became active in the photography scenes in San Francisco and Santa Barbara. She began giving interviews, doing speaking engagements throughout the country. And then finally, at the age of 79, after fighting lung cancer for a year, she died in 1990. Her FSA work took up over just three years of her long life, but for this, she's remembered. All of Marianne's FSA work can be accessed for free online in the Library of Congress. We'll provide a link in the show notes. But perhaps her daughter put it best, memorializing her mother a decade after her passing. And always, her photographs suggest the political. Segregation and discrimination, humiliation and condescension, labor movements, eroded, worn-out land, dirty, sick, malnourished children, overcrowded schools. She traveled primarily alone, got tired and lonely and sick and burnt out. She had to wrap her camera in hot water bottles to keep the shutter from freezing, write captions at night in flimsy motel rooms while fending off the men trying to enter through the transoms, deal with southern social workers, suspicious cops, chiggers and mosquitoes, mud heat, and humidity. She picked beans with her subjects. She changed their kids' diapers and washed their faces. Why did they allow her into their lives? to get the images that reveal more than an objective document of the times. Images that show a connection of spirit, the dignity, pride, despair, and hope in the faces of these people she cared about and understood. They liked her. They knew she cared. They thought that maybe she would, could, help. That the images would get back to others who would and could help. She gave them hope, and she did what she had to do with a passion and commitment that kept her on the back road alone for up to a month at a time. Her grace and wit, charm and intellect, silliness and concern, activism, good cooking, thoughtfulness, love, and devotion are sorely missed. Well, we covered photo books in the beginning of the episode we're gonna move on to zines we love zines i think we probably love zines more than we love photo books and we love photo books but we like zines even more and this episode we've got two Vanya, what have you got for us i have a lovely eight by eight square zine nsw west by bill two uh so analog photos uh taken with his pentax 67 olympus om1 and hasselblad 500 cm Bill calls himself lucky to venture out this way due to work and takes the opportunity to photograph the landscape. The colors and black and white work he captures are foreign, but yet still familiar to my eye. You get the sense of the vastness of the landscape. His long exposure work is top notch. Even though he humbly dismisses himself as not terribly technical, the pictures speak for him. Deep blue hues, bright streaks of light that are all extraordinarily unique. He even shares a few tips and a formula in the back of the zine if any of you choose to attempt to master reciprocity failure. This is a very Bill zine. I have followed Bill for a while now, and I can't think of a more supportive photographer out there. I feel as if I was out in the middle of nowhere trying to capture a long exposure, I could count on Bill to be on my team. He is everything I love about this community, and I think you should know about him as well. Because we all need a bill, too. You can get this on pixelandgrains.photo.blog, or you can head to at Bill2 on Instagram, and he will have a link on his main page. 
with the exception of like a few photos here and there, if you were to tell me that this was shot in the Dakotas and maybe a bit of Nebraska, I would absolutely believe you. Yeah, I got a sense of that. It does definitely have a little bit of a unique look because it is Australia, it's not America, but there is a lot of landscape that has that that familiar look to it. It just looks like middle America. And that's so mm-hmm. interesting. You know, I don't see a lot of, of, of Australia. I've never been. But mm-hmm. yeah, this really reminds me of the Dakotas. Like a lot. Mm-hmm. Very cool. All right. So what zine do you have for us? Well, I have one called Grid by Garen Kiesel. I have that one too. You do have that one. So this is another square zine. We're all into square zines right now. I, I kind of dig it. Big square zines. I'm doing one eventually. This one is, is perfect bound. It's, it's very book-like, I guess. Uh, it's made up of photographs of electrical pylons, and they're featured prominently in each photo. They were shot with a Holga using Ilford HP5, but these don't really look like your typical HP5 shots. They're full of this red filter-inspired contrast with levels crunched and compressed and distortions and grain, a plenty, a lot of grain. I would, if, if I had to guess, these were developed in like fast rotenol or something. So while this has some resemblance to other photos taken with a Holga, it's not flooded with the same distractions, distinctions that are common to to a lot of Holga shots. Sure, random shit is blurry, like with any Holga, but the heavy contrast throws all of that into a very different feeling. And though all the shots contain or feature pylons, they're generally distinct enough that it doesn't feel like you're looking at the same shot over and over for like 40 times. Personally, the suburban set photos are my favorite. Seeing a quaint little ranch house with this monstrous tower rising above it brings back memories of of Beast of Yucca Flats or something. So you can pick this zine up from Garen himself. He is at grain underscore or underscore die grain or die on instagram if you'd like to support our podcast you can head over to patreon.com slash all through a lens we've got bonus episode full-length interviews and a growing number of things and since last episode we've had two new patrons join up we've got ariella and kidding there. So thank you so much for your support. We wow, we really, really appreciate it. <laughs> yes, we do. And we have a featured patron today. We do. And this is none other than Tim Anderson, DV over DT. I <laughs> I'm sure you're all familiar with him. He is the neon god. He sh- yes. He is the <laughs> god of neon on slide film. Period. And that's just yes. there's I don't know of anybody who's done it better. And he's just technical and fucking good at what he yeah, does. Yeah, <laughs> if, if, if there was an expert on doing that, it is him. He, Absolutely. He's just good at what he does. And he is a wealth of information and a wealth of opinionated information. And I like that. He mixes yeah. his very intense opinions on things like Cinestill in with what he's talking about. And it's it's a delight. He is very much an engineer. He just, he's passionate. He's passionate, yeah. Well, if you guys don't follow Tim, I definitely think that you guys should It's at DV underscore over underscore DT. And thank you, Tim, for your support. We really appreciate it with Patreon and just with, honestly, with everything. He's been there with us since before the beginning. I just got three Travoltas from him on one of my Lomo Purple pictures, so I'm pretty happy. Yeah, he's like the American (laughs) Bill, too, as far as support goes. Yeah, I think so. That's about all the podcasts we've got for you today. But before we leave, I want to remind you about the question that's coming up for the next episode, the answer machine question. And that is, is there a moral or trait that you learned when you were young that you apply to photography now? 
Yeah, a little bit of a heady question. Sort of a photography yeah. question. Sort of not a <laughs> photography question. So how were you raised? Did your parents do you well? If you'd like to answer that, head over to All Through a Lens on Instagram and send us a voicemail message. And is there anything else you'd like to say before we get out of here? Yeah, one thing. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter. Fanya is at Surf Martian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag all through a lens podcast to be featured. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find your podcasts. Subscribe and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so very much for listening. We love you. See you in a couple of weeks. Uh, Panya? Yes. Do you want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. Oh, oh, his jammies. He's in jammies. Love He's them. in Star Wars jammies. Star Wars jammies. Nice. Yeah. That's what he lives in, basically. <laughs> okay.